Hi everyone and welcome to episode 26 of The FFS Show, a podcast about misinformation and fact-checking by The Ferret. I am one of your hosts, Ali Bryan, and with me, not as always, because Sam Gonsalves is, on, is unfortunately on holiday, uh, or unfortunately, depending on your viewpoint, I've got a, a very able replacement in my ferret colleague and friend, Jamie Mann. How are you doing, Jamie? Hi, Ali. It's, it's good to good to be here. Good to be a uh, second choice to Sam, yep. or I suppose third choice to Mags. Uh, third choice you know. to Mags, yeah. Fourth yeah. choice, just me, me doing it on my own. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I feel pretty privileged. Just for our listeners, could you just, you know, tell us who you are, what your job is? Yeah, I am Jamie Mann. I am uh, a ferret journalist. Worked with the ferret since I think sort of late 2015. Mm. Uh, one of the directors and slightly more enthusiastic than you on a good day, I reckon. Yeah. Hopefully that means we'll match the energies of me and Sam. So what have, what have we got to expect in today's podcast, Ali? Well, we have uh, a fact check. We're looking at uh, Ruth Davidson and fund whether she was funded by the Russians. Uh, and we also have an interview with Dr. Kevin Guyon, who was discussing the way that LGBT identities are not well represented in data and also referencing the current controversy around the Scottish census. So that's something to look forward to. Okay, yeah, that is that is a certainly a, a packed episode. So, should we get into it then? Yep, let's go right into it. So, uh, what fact check are we looking into this week, Ali? Thanks for asking. We are looking at a fact check about Ruth Davidson, uh, the former Conservative leader, in relation to the Russian attack on Ukraine. Uh, we, we've been looking into uh, a claim that uh, Ruth Davidson was one of a number of Tory MPs who received uh, donations from Russia. This was a graphic that was shared hundreds of times on social media in various different forms that gave a list of Russian donations to Tory MPs and included uh, Ruth Davidson, who it claimed had received uh, £20,000. Interesting. And so how did you get on? Is, is there any truth to it? People will know that the Conservative Party, particularly during this at the current conflict have been subject to a lot of controversy and, and criticism over donations which they've received, which are from people who are linked uh, in some way to the Russian state. This graphic named 25 specific Tory politicians, including Ruth Davidson, and alleged different amounts that they've received from Russian donors. Firstly, obviously, it's important to note uh, on this podcast that it's not illegal for people for uh, Conservative Party uh, politicians or any politicians to get donations from people who are Russian-born, as long as they fulfill the election commission criteria, so they have to be from the UK or Commonwealth, and their donations have to be properly recorded. So the the money that we're, we're referring to here isn't actually money that was donated to Ruth Davidson, as is claimed in the the graphic that was shared. It actually appears to be from a £20,000 that, that was raised in a fundraising event for the Conservative Party in 2018. So the fundraising event is called the Black and White Ball. It's quite a famous uh, annual fundraiser for the Tories. Very high profile attendees every year. It's also one of these things widely covered in the press in London, etc. And there's often an auction in which prizes that are auctioned off include various events involving party members, party, you know, high profile party politicians. So one of the prizes at the Black and White Ball in 2018 was uh, to spend a day with the then Prime Minister Theresa May. 
Another one was a dinner with Ruth Davidson. So essentially, Ruth Davidson was among the prizes at this fundraising event. Um, so where where were they going to go where, for dinner? Like which which branch of Weatherspoons? <laughs> yeah, well, I think Weatherspoons, Nando's, they were always they're all options for the dinner. The person who uh, won the dinner with Ruth Davidson was a Russian businesswoman called Lubov Chernukin. She's one of the uh, Tory party's biggest donors. Had gave, given more than two million to the Conservative Party since 2012. She was once married to the Ru- Russia's deputy finance minister uh, under Vladimir Putin. So there have been understandably links drawn and uh, concerns raised given the amount of money that she's given to the Tory party. But what we, what we can say is it's not a donation to Ruth Davidson. It's not a, she, it's not a donation to Ruth Davidson. It's, it's a donation to the Conservative Party. So it's not a donation to Ruth Davidson. It's a donation to the Central Conservative Party via an auction at which Ruth Davidson was a prize. <laughs> Donations to Ruth Davidson are obviously catalogued by the Electoral Commission and the highest donation she's received personally was £12,500. Confusion seems to be that Ruth Davidson was part of the auction prizes that were bid on by Chernukin, but the money itself didn't go to her, it went to the Central Party. Uh, Chernukin has donated loads to the Conservative Central Party in various different uh, Conservative associations and uh, party branches, but she's only given money to, directly to one MP, Brandon Lewis. She hasn't given money to Ruth Davidson. Yeah, I mean, so what, what was the verdict? We went with mostly false. Uh, obviously, Ruth Davidson did not directly receive a 20 grand donation from a Russian that was linked to the Putin government. Um, a dinner with her was auctioned off during a Soviet party fundraiser event in 2018. It actually, as it turns out, that event, according to the Conservatives, didn't actually end up happening. Um, so Lubov Chernikin did not get her money's worth, unfortunately. There's no evidence to suggest that money went directly to Ruth Davidson. Instead, it went to the Central Conservative Party. Now it's time for me and Sam's interview with Dr. Kevin Guyon. Uh, he's a researcher and data scientist, data analyst, who has written a really interesting book called Queer Data, which is about how the use and collection of data has shaped LGBTQ lives and how it's, uh, you know, biases in data and biases in questions that are asked and bias, biases in the way that data is presented, etc., has been used in, in the past to sort of criminalize LGBTQ people and also hasn't really accurately reflected the reality of people's lives and lived experiences. Uh, we also spoke to him about the controversy around the Scottish census, and particularly, many of you will know that there has been controversy about, around uh, some of the questions around identity and sexuality in the census that's just been uh, released. So we talked a little bit about that and what, what his views are and how he thinks that the Scottish census should have been done and how it should be done. Um, so yeah, interesting chat coming up. I think there's a really interesting tension between um, LGBTQ identities or people who are maybe perceived as different in terms of their gender, sex and sexuality at different time points in history and how that kind of intersects and cuts across um, data practices. So particularly whether it's surveys or um, exercises undertaken by the government or by providers of services or the state, um, how do they make sense of these identities in data? And in my work around the book and my wider research, 
um, it became clear to me that the relationship, particularly between LGBTQ groups or those perceived as LGBTQ, um, wasn't pretend, wasn't particularly a positive historical relationship. So throughout history, um, data, whether it's quantitative data, so whether it's stats, numbers and figures, or qualitative data, so stuff kind of interviews, um, testimonies, has often been used by people in positions of power to cause harm and to inflict damage on uh, marginalised groups, whether they be LGBTQ or we see similar issues along uh, racial minority groups, uh, disabled communities, a range of different um, minoritised groups. Um, I guess some examples from that would be um, when it comes to the use of data to maybe provide evidence of criminality for LGBTQ people, whether it's um, right. men involved in same-sex relationships or throughout history, people may be dressing in clothes associated with another gender. Um, this evidence or this data has been used as kind of evidence of some kind of criminality. And in health spaces, we see how, um, again, quantitative data has been used to show evidence of kind of psychological abnormality or something being wrong um, in regards to these communities. So what I hope that people take from, from the book and from my work is that kind of double side to data being a source of good, but also a source of harm for many people as well. You talk a little bit about the process of gathering the data in itself being sometimes a political process, a process that kind of makes assumptions about the world. Can you tell me a bit more about that? What became really surprising to me, particularly my work around the census, was how often these large quantitative data practices or large quantitative data sets had this kind of um, illusion of being ahistorical or this illusion of being apolitical or this illusion that they're somehow something the data scientists just go off and kind of go into the back garden and, and excavate and uncover and there isn't <laughs> yeah. actually a process in in kind of designing manipulating taking some things into the foreground pushing some things into the shadow are all part of the design process whether or not it's something along like the lines of qualitative data or something as large as a as a national census yeah do you have an example of that of of a kind of uh, a survey or a process of gathering qualitative data that that clearly has a, a slant that it a kind of political slant or a kind of assumption that it makes about the, the people it's looking at yeah i think the most obvious um areas around the design would be how you design a, a kind of a, a question so how are you kind of asking the question and then also right. the response options you're providing um so if, a really clear example would be the census in Scotland, which is asking a new question on sexual orientation. And in that, um, it has to kind of, in the question, it has to kind of conceptualize what do we mean by sexual orientation? So are we asking about somebody's identity? Are we asking about somebody's behavior or their actions? Mm. Are we asking about how somebody's perceived externally? Um, right. And then underneath that, the list of response options. So in the Scottish census, there's going to be one for heterosexual straight, an option for gay lesbian, an option for bisexual, and another write-in option. But I do wonder if we added that list or provided other response options, like maybe queer or polysexual or asexual, by adding those other options, would that change the size of those groups when it comes to the counting of the data? So the decisions about what's kind of included and what's excluded is often made by individuals at some part of the process. Mm. And what became really clear to me with the Scottish census is that these decisions often were being made by people who weren't themselves um, part of the LGBTQ community. Right. So again, this view of who is in a position of power to kind of um, 
decide who who counts and who doesn't count and are those decisions being made by people who themselves identify as part of that group or positioned outside of that and we see similar arguments um across a range of different identity characteristics particularly um race and ethnicity again right. who is counted and um, we've all got experience of doing diversity monitoring forms and work or signing up for a gp or a dentist and whether you see yourself on that uh survey um is a judgment call in regards to somebody's made that decision at some point in the design process. Yeah, we've seen. I think that really speaks to some of the stuff that we've seen uh, in our work, like fact checking as well, with uh, polling, particularly around GRA and around uh, trans identities, and some of the polling that's been done by people perhaps with an agenda. The way that they ask the question has enormous impact on the response. And I think that's why the work of the ferret and just fact checking is so important, because I do think particularly quantitative data exercises, whether they're surveys or polling, do do for many, many people have this veneer of being neutral or this veneer of being totally objective. And as you're saying, it does make a huge difference how the question's asked, who it's asked, when it's asked, the framing of it, the packaging of it, how it's presented on the screen. All of these things can affect the outcome. And I do want I kind of, I hope that one of my things from the book is people start to ask a bit more critical questions about these quantitative, particularly quantitative data exercises, and maybe start to see some of the politics that underpins, as you're saying, whether it's polling or surveys, um, can have a massive trickle-down effect on the, the outcomes that come from them. Totally. Um, on on the census in Scotland, the next Scottish census, um, it's going to ask questions around sexual orientation uh, and transgender identity. Um, do you think this is going to be a, a kind of fairly gathered, accurate representation of the LGBT community? Or do you see the questions that it's going to ask in the next census as a bit of a... Can, can you already see some of those flaws present in, in those plans? I think it's always going to be really, really challenging um, capturing information about identity in any type of research exercise, any type of survey, any type right. of census is always going to be have a degree of inaccuracy built into it. Um, how I like to think about it is you kind of, if you imagine identity as being something that's quite time specific, context specific, fluid, almost a moving target, and you're trying to kind of capture information about that using. Um, mechanisms and practices that are often quite static, often quite fixed, often a bit of a time lag between capturing the information and then reporting it. So whatever comes out the census around any type of identity is always going to be a, a representation of the social world um, to, and to varying degrees, a representation that doesn't fully capture the world accurately. Um, I think with sexual orientation and uh, trans status or history, there are some interesting challenges around how do we make sense of that in, mm -hmm. in quantitative data? How do we design questions that best capture that? And this is what the Scottish Government and the National Records of Scotland, um, which is the organisation in Scotland responsible for delivering the census, have been working on um, for a, a, a fairly long period of time now, at least the past five years, around how best do we design these questions. Obviously, there's been some like controversy around the census and around self-identifying answers. One of the arguments that's been made by certain groups is that that will affect the robustness of the data. How do you respond to that? I guess my response would be in any type of survey, um, there's a degree of self-identification. Um, the I guess the opposite position is we ask somebody else to externally describe our identity, uh, which is not a path I'm sure any of us would want to be going down. Um, in regards to the, the accuracy and the robustness of it, I think 
there's always going to be people who subvert who, who subvert the system who try and kind of break the rules but again something at the scale is going to account for that it's going to not necessarily limit the robustness of the data and i think what's particularly key and what's sometimes lost in these discussions about self-identification is actually this is about creating a picture of scotland creating a picture of the country um trying to represent the day-to-day -day reality of how of people's lives living here and actually as an exercise we want something that's inclusive that's accessible that makes sense to the people completing it so that they you can sit down in front of your computer and when it comes to answering this question you can see yourself in them you can see your life your life represented in the questions being asked and i think for me that's a really important dimension to it and that's only going to improve the quality and the accuracy of the data collected That was a really interesting interview of Kevin. It certainly brought a lot of new things to light for me. Yeah, definitely. That is all we have time for in episode 26 of the FFS show. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, thanks to Kevin, Dr. Kevin Guyon again. Um, and remember, his book is called Queer Data, and you can find it in all good bookshops. And I'm sure some of the not-so-good ones as well, but you know, go to the good ones. Thanks a lot to Jamie for ably stepping in to Sam's shoes uh, for this episode. Did you find it to be a joy or more of a sort of roller coaster of emotions? Um, revelation, I suppose, would be the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. would be the, be the term that you would accurately use. But now that you've been uh, co-host of this, you can be put on the wall of fame. Of all the different co-hosts that's me sam mags and you now um we'll be trying to get as many different people from the ferret in there as possible to share the blame i mean uh glory of this podcast no thank you very much you've been a very able co-host and remember to check out the ferret's website ferret.scot uh, for all of our fact checks all the rest of our journalism you can find us on social media find us on twitter at ferret scott you can find us on facebook by searching for the ferret uh, and instagram again the ferret and Remember, if you've got any questions or queries about this podcast, you can contact us at factcheckattheferret.scot by email. And thanks for listening. Bye. Good stuff.